the book of Colossians, chapter 4, our final sermon in the Colossians series. This morning we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 2 through 18. Please hear now the word of the Lord. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the truth, the gospel. You know, I, uh, I learn a lot of things that make no difference in my life. Fascinating things, amazing things, true things that change nothing about my life. For example, did you know that when woodpeckers are actually pecking at wood, they wrap their extraordinarily long tongue around their brain to create a cushion so they don't get a headache when they're chipping away at the wood? That's fascinating. It makes no difference to my life whatsoever. Or did you know that German chocolate cake did not come from Germany? It was invented in Texas. And the, the chocolate that was used was by, it was by a company owned by a man named Sam German. And so it was German's chocolate cake. Fascinating and completely irrelevant to my life. But there are other things that we learn that should change our lives very much, that should cause us to form new habits uh, form new relationships. For example, if you find out there's a baby on the way, an adoption has gone through, you're, you're going to be adding someone to your home. Or when you hear that there's a hurricane coming and you're in the danger zone. Okay, those bits of information are not just interesting, they're actually very important. And they should create a response in your life. One of the dangers that we face as Christians is that we hear preaching and teaching and we read God's word and we study it and we learn so much and we file that information away in that category of interesting and yet irrelevant instead of being in the category of important 
transformative. Everything Scripture reveals about God and about His character and about His deeds is meant to affect us and to shape us. In Deuteronomy 29, the Lord tells the Israelites that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Everything God reveals to us has a purpose, and it's that we would live in response to it, that we may do what He tells us to do. And everything we've seen in Colossians these past few months is not just a collection of fun and interesting facts, but it's rather a guidebook for how we are to live rightly in the world that God has made. More specifically, it teaches us how to live together as a community of people who live in light of these truths. So what should that look like? What kind of people should we be, and I mean people as a community, as we respond to these important truths of the past three chapters of Colossians? This list of names that I read may seem like the part of Scripture we just skim over, but they're actually a snapshot of a community that is living the truths that Paul has proclaimed to us in this book, a community drawn together and shaped by the revelation that Christ is above everything else. And so I want to look at four things that we see about this community. The first being that they are a people who engage in prayer. One of the marks of a community shaped by a belief in Christ is that they pray. Colossians begins with a prayer and it ends with a prayer. In, in verse 2 of chapter 4, Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer is such a common practice and habit in the Christian community that we don't often pause to consider why we pray. We're more concerned with what we should pray for. But we need to step back and consider why we pray. We pray because as we saw earlier in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, in Jesus all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. If Jesus is God, and God not far away but dwelling close with us, if He is in control of all creation and is yet working in our hearts to renew us and to make us like Him, as, as chapter 1 verse 20 said, in order to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. If that's who Jesus is and that's the work that He is doing, then His people turn to Him for everything they need. Prayer is not a presenting of our wish list to God for the things that we want most and hoping that God is in the right mood to grant us those things. No, prayer is the citizens of God's kingdom seeking to know and act out the will of their king. It is saying, as he taught us in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so look at how Colossians, the, the book of Colossians began, the prayer that Paul began it with in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Paul prays for the church that they would know what they need to know in order to live the way they need to live. And likewise, in chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras prays for the Colossians that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. 
consider the nature of the prayers of a people who know Jesus. Yes, we pray for healing. Yes, we pray that God would meet our material needs. But the goal of those prayers should be that we would know what we need to know in order to do what we need to do for God's kingdom. That we can continue the work of building and proclaiming God's kingdom. In other words, prayer is not about what we want to get from God. It's about what we want to do for God's kingdom. So in chapter 4, verse 2, when we read, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, he says to pray steadfastly and to be watchful. People that pray to the maker of the universe who controls all things and who has a good plan for what he does, such people can pray steadfastly, not giving up, because they trust the one that they pray to. And they know that that when he answers prayer, he does it with what is good. Like my kids, when they're hungry, will ask me for food. And they'll keep asking me for food until they get the food they need. Not because they're annoying, not because they have bad behavior. It's because they have a need. And because they trust me to meet their need with something good. Maybe not in exactly the way they want, but definitely in a way that is good. And as we pray for one another, we should pray like we've been taught in these verses. We should pray that one another would become mature, that we would be strengthened, that we would be made wise, that we would grow in our convictions, that we would have what we need to fulfill the ministry that God has called us to. The people who know the Jesus described in Colossians are a people who pray. Another feature that we see is that there are people who encourage ministry. Starting with the prayers that Paul asks for himself. In verse 3, at the same time, pray for us that God would open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So next time somebody asks you, how can I pray for you? And you don't know the spiritual answer to that one. Pray that God would make me bold to say the things that I, should, that I should say for the sake of His Word. Because it's not just Paul that is called to share the Word of God. In the next verses, 5 and 6, he says to the church and to you as well, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul reminds them that every moment is a ministry opportunity. Every word that you say, every action that you take communicates something about the God that you claim to serve and to love. That phrase, make the best use of the time, reminds me of Psalm 90, where Moses says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The psalmist, in this case Moses, is remembering that life is brief. And our opportunities are numbered. They are limited. And that knowledge should make us careful to be wise in how we use the limited time that we have. To do that, Paul says, one of the things we're told to do is to be careful in our speech. To not waste our words. When speaking especially with those who are not in Christ, he says, let your speech be gracious. Not designed to shame them or to insult them, or to own them, 
not belittling them or mocking them or provoking them into argument. That's the world's way of speaking. In 1 Peter 3, looking at the example of Christ, the apostle says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Paul describes this kind of gracious speech as being seasoned with salt. What does salty language look like for the Christian? I found it interesting that a, a Roman, non-Christian Roman orator around Paul's time put it this way. Quintilius said that in the case of those who have the salt of wit, there is something about their language which arouses in us a thirst to hear. That's what it means for your words to be seasoned with salt. That you speak in a way that makes people go, I want to hear more about that. I, I want to understand what you're talking about, whether it's just the way that you say it, the authenticity of how you say it, saying it in a particular way that makes people say, no, tell me more. You're not trying to shut people down with your language. You're trying to make them thirsty to hear more of what you have to say. And again, this comes from what we've learned about Christ in Colossians. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says that God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is that mystery? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. God is in the business of showing off his goodness to the world. His power, his mercy, his wisdom, his compassion. And he does that through us by putting us on display and giving us the words to speak that draw people in and that reveal who God is. Not only in saving us, but in sending us out in ministry. And so we do it, as Paul said, with the strength that God gives us. And so in 417... At the end of the letter, Paul tells the church, Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Doesn't tell us what that is. Archippus hopefully knew and understood. And he likewise, in verse 12 and 13, described Epaphras as working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Whatever the ministry that we are given is, it's not a threat, it's not a nagging thing. Hey, do your ministry. It's a reminder, it's an encouragement that God has placed you where He has in the world with the gifts and abilities and experiences He's given you, surrounded you with the people He has put in your life for a reason. Everyone, Archippus, Paul, Tychicus, Luke, me and you, everyone has a role in building God's kingdom. So people of TCPC, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord, the ministry to declare His praises, the ministry to preach His gospel, to comfort His people, to serve His body. These acts of service are not the bonus round for the super mature Christians. They are instead the life and breath, the daily exercise of everyone who knows and follows this God that we have been learning about, who is reconciling all things to Himself through Jesus. So these people who believe in this God, this Christ above all. They're a people who engage in prayer and who encourage ministry. They're also a people who extend grace. 
And we see that in some of these verses, but I have to give you the backstory to understand it. For example, in verse 9, Paul says, I have sent to you Onesimus, my faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. If the name Onesimus doesn't ring a bell, let me remind you of his story. He had been a bondservant to a family that was in the church that received this letter to the Colossians, and yet he ran away. He broke his contract and perhaps stole some money on his way out the door and ran far away. And in God's powerful, sovereign providence, as Onesimus ran away, he ran into, of all people, Paul. And Paul shared the gospel with him. And Onesimus believed the gospel and began to work alongside Paul, serving him, ministering to him while he's in prison in another city. And Paul, upon learning that, hey, you're from this church that I know, and you're with this, you actually come from your employer's a guy I know. He's a friend of mine. His name's Philemon. You, you can't continue in this state of having broken contract and stolen from him. You've got to go back and make things right. And so along with the letter to the Colossians, Paul sent another letter in your Bible. It's called the book of Philemon. It's one chapter long. And it's Paul writing to Philemon saying, I'm sending Onesimus back and giving you the chance to do the right thing and to show him the same grace that the Lord showed you. In Philemon, verses 15 and 16, he says, For this is perhaps why Onesimus was parted from you for a while. It was so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. And again, this, this looks back at what we've already seen in Colossians. Paul's applying what he already said earlier in chapter 3. He said, in the, in the community of God's people, there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. We don't judge or value people based on how the world sees them. We extend grace and see them as God sees them. In writing Philemon, Paul said in verse 17, Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Whatever wrong he had done, whatever hurt he had caused, the grace of God was sufficient. In chapter 3, verse 13, Paul said to the church, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. When we understand how God has removed our sins in Christ, we extend that same level of grace and forgiveness to others. Paul shows that he too has that same grace. In verse 10, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Do you remember Mark's story? Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys, helping them plant some of the first churches among the Gentiles. But then in the middle of their trip, he abandoned them. Something happened and he checked out and he said, I can't do this anymore. So the next time that Paul and Barnabas were preparing a follow-up visit, we see in Acts 15 that Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark with him. And Paul said, that's not a good idea. I don't want to take this guy who, who withdrew from us and had not gone on with us in the work. And they had such a disagreement that they parted ways. Barnabas took Mark and went somewhere else, and Paul and Silas went somewhere else. There's some great lessons there on the sources of conflict in the church and how God uses it in our lives. But the lesson today is that by the time Paul is writing to the Colossians, Mark is back with him, serving with him, receiving welcome. 
Paul is demonstrating the same kind of grace that he wants the church to show to one another because they have received that grace from the Lord. The people of God in every generation are called to be a people of grace, forgiving others in the same extravagant way that God forgave them, showing grace to the weak, to the failures, to the jerks, to the clueless, knowing that Christ is all and Christ is in all. Finally, the way that the people of God express this belief that Christ is above all is they are a people who express unity. And in this case, I'm not talking about unity as opposed to division. I'm talking about a sense of connection with God's people everywhere, not just those who are like you, not just those who are close to you. No individual Christian lives the life apart from the church and no church lives apart from the other churches in the body of Christ. And so in verses 7 and through 9, Paul tells of Tychicus, says he's going to come and tell you what's going on with me. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister. I've sent him to you for this purpose, that you might know how we are and that he can encourage you. And with him, I'm sending Onesimus, and they will tell you of everything that's taken place here. It's not enough in Paul's mind for the church to hear the doctrines that Paul is teaching. He wants them to know how he is doing, and he wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to know what's been happening in the other churches he's visiting. He wants them to know how their brothers and sisters in the Lord are doing, people they've never met. And he asks them in turn to pray for him. In verse 18, he says, remember my chains. Don't forget I'm a prisoner. Send me the things I need. (laughs) But he likewise passes on greetings to the other churches in the neighborhood, in neighboring cities. In verse 15 through 16, he says, greet the the brothers at Laodicea. And then he sends a greeting to Nympha and the church at her house. And he says, once you read this letter, pass it on to that church and get the letter they have. There should be not just fellowship, but a sharing of learning and a sharing in ministry, that might be easy to do with people who are a lot like us. But what about with Christians who are very different from us, whose way of practicing their faith is very different? In verses 10 through 11, Paul speaks of Aristarchus and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and Jesus, who's called Justice. He says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort for me. In the early church, there was plenty of conflict between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul was saying, look, I've got both kinds of people working with me in this ministry together. Because as we just saw in chapter 3, verse 11, in the body of Christ, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And once again, that's a natural expression of what he was already teaching them earlier in the book. In chapter 1, verse 18, he said that Jesus is the head of the body, the head of the church. He is not just the head of one particular church. Jesus is not the head of Treasure Coast Presbyterian Church only. He's not the head of the Presbyterian Church in America only. He is the head of the great church That is all the people who call on his name and we are one body with them no matter how distant or different they are. Even if other Christians are different from us or distant from us, we are still one family. 
even if we would be uncomfortable with the way that they worship and sing and practice their faith, even if we think they're wrong on some big doctrines, we are one family and we express that unity. If we believe that Jesus is the head of the church, we express that unity with everyone who calls on his name and worships him. We pray for them. We help them. We encourage them. We learn from them because we're not 100% right. We partner with them and we fellowship with them because we are one body under one head, which is Jesus Christ. I would like to go into more detail. I would like to talk about Demas, who's mentioned in this letter, because we later see that he abandons Paul and the work of the ministry. I'd like to talk about Luke that he mentions, who wrote 20% of the New Testament. And here he gets a little mention as humbly working alongside Paul. But for now, I hope we've seen enough to understand that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he is God in human form, giving his life on the cross to pay for sins, rising again to give a new life to his people, and working to reconcile all things to himself. That is not just to inform you. That's not just something I want you to nod your head to, or if you're of a different mood, to shout amen to. That's not all that it's for. It's not enough to hear and agree. The gospel is not something that you should find just interesting or even just inspiring. The gospel is instructive. It tells you how to shape your life in response. Something you do not by yourself, but you do it with the gathering of God's people. The gospel creates a community of people who live out the good news of Jesus together. And as such a community, one of the ways that we express that unity, that we encourage one another in prayer and in ministry, and that we extend grace, is that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We remember Jesus who died and rose again. And how that gospel not only calls us to do these things, but makes us able to do them by His grace and His Spirit in us. So let's prepare our hearts in prayer for the Lord's Supper. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have, by Your Gospel, created a new people. And You have included us among those who are not only saved by faith, but made new by faith and given new strength by faith to be the people You've called us to be. Pray that you would, by your Spirit, write these things on our hearts. That we may not only know them, not only understand them, not only in our hearts or, or with our mouths shout a hearty amen to these things, but that our lives would reflect them. That the way we live would show that we have been touched and shaped by the gospel. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, as our kids join us, because we wouldn't want to have supper without the kids. We welcome them. And we take a moment to remember what's going on here. The Lord's Supper is, is a reminder of how we are, who we are called to be. In order to become the people God calls us to be, we have to see and know and understand who Christ is. And, and there is probably no greater illustration of that than the Lord's Supper, which He has given us. That He is God in human flesh, His body, the bread. 
that he was just not God far away who just snapped his fingers and made everything okay. He had to take on flesh and pay the price for our sins. The bread. But he didn't just show up, teach us some interesting things, live a good life, set an example and tell us to do what what he said. That was not enough because our debt of sin had still to be paid. And so he had to go to the cross and die. His blood in the cup represented for us that we might understand who he is. He is God, all the fullness of deity dwelling in human flesh, dying and rising again for you. As you take the bread, as you take the cup, remember that. Recognize that. And if that is not the foundation of your hope, then let the bread and let the cup go by. There's no shame in that. Nobody's going to mock you for that. Nobody's going to judge you for that. Because when you take that bread and when you drink from that cup, you are confessing that you have trusted in Christ. That you believe these things that we have been studying and learning about in Colossians for the past few months. That you believe that, that Jesus was not just an ordinary person, but He was God. And that He didn't just come and, and perform some miracles and teach us some interesting things. He died and He had to. Because it was the only way, only way for God to reconcile us, to bring us back into His family. If you believe that, then this is for you. If you claim to believe that, but are choosing stubbornly, proudly, selfishly to lead your own life, to live according to your own standards and not what Christ has said, then you are abusing the grace of God. And this is a warning of what God does to sin. Jesus died because He took on sin. If you are still choosing sin, then judgment awaits. Also, Scripture warns us that as those who have been made into this new community of God's people, if we've done anything to break that unity, we need to be reconciled first before we receive the sign and the symbol of what unites us. And so as you prepare to receive the bread and the cup as a believer in Jesus Christ, if something comes to mind, a a relationship that that is still unmended, if, if you have offended or hurt or sinned against someone and not gone to them to repent and to seek to make it right, or if someone has hurt you and in your heart you are withholding from them, whether they've asked for it or not, You are withholding the same grace that God has shown you. God who forgave you when you didn't seek it. God who forgave you when you didn't deserve it. If you are withholding that same grace for another, not forgiving as Christ forgave you, then in a moment when I pray, take this time. Take that moment of prayer to commit your confidence before the Holy Spirit that you will make it right. You will repent. You will extend grace. You will receive grace. But if anything I've said has intimidated you, I don't want that to be the case. If you feel that you're just not a mature enough Christian, you have not been obedient enough this week. You don't believe strongly enough. You still have some questions or confusions in your heart. You're not there yet. Then this is absolutely for you. Because this is the reminder that nothing you do will ever be enough. Only Christ is enough. 
He was the only one who could live the perfect life that God demanded and die the death that God required and yet rise to new life. So come to the table. Be fed by grace. Be not only reminded and encouraged, but strengthened for the obedience of living out the gospel in the community of God's people. So let's prepare our hearts as the elders come forward and prepare to serve us. Please join me in prayer. If anything needs to be confessed, take the time to do that in your hearts. If you need to commit to making anything right, do that now in your conscience before the Holy Spirit as we pray. Heavenly Father, you've called us to come worthily before this table and to receive worthily the body of Christ. And we know that we are only worthy because of what this table represents, that Christ, who was God in human flesh, died in our place and gave us, clothed us in His righteousness. May we come with that worthiness, depending on grace. May we not take lightly what He has done, but claim it for ourselves in humility, knowing that we have added nothing but our sin to this great salvation. Prepare our hearts to receive the sign and the seal of your covenant love. And as we eat and drink in faith, may it nourish our spirits, direct our thoughts, strengthen our resolve, and in every way shape us in the image of Christ as we are renewed in the new man daily. We thank you for this promise. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.